Welcome to the Kaleidoscope with Allison Keys. This is a podcast from CBS News, and I am your host. This show is a breakout from the CBS News Weekend Roundup, and every week we discuss issues including race and history. Now we're talking about an exhibition at the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture. It's called Make Good the Promises, Reconstruction and Its Legacies. With more than 175 objects, 300 images, and 14 media programs, it connects the dots between Blacks' quest for freedom after the Civil War and the battles of today. From police reform to voting rights for people of color. Make sure to encourage all of our kids to live out that dream that so many fought and died for. To the way dark-skinned migrants are treated at the border when trying to enter this nation seeking asylum. What we witnessed was worse than what we witnessed in slavery. Smithsonian curator Paul Gardulo joins me to talk about some of the parallels between the past and the present. That conversation after this short break. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. The museum is is describing the period of Reconstruction as a period that needs to be reclaimed, reclaimed from myth, from, in some senses, willful ignorance, and from occlusion, right? I think that in many ways, the history and the true past of Reconstruction has been covered over by this project that's lasted as long as we've been uh, the period following the Civil War from 1865 until today. And that is this project of the lost cause. And that is history making process. Let's put it more bluntly. That has been a a willful misreading of, of the history of our nation that demeans and dehumanizes and decenters African Americans from the narrative of freedom and making America into a place that its founding documents promised and continue to promise that it will be. We want to basically shine a light on the visions of freedom that millions of African Americans shared and helped bring into being in the decades following the Civil War. Those visions of freedom reshaped our politics, questions of land and labor, questions of community building, issues of civic rights and human rights. And they really provide a model for human rights and civil rights struggles that have come forward. I'm curious, because there is an ongoing battle for voting rights, an ongoing battle for equity in education and in housing and, frankly, racial violence. 
would you, with your expertise, consider us to be in the middle of a second reconstruction, or is this more of a continuation of the reconstruction that so many people don't know much about? I think that's a great question, Allison, and I think it's what's interesting is that for many people who are working within the civil rights movement and studying what many people call the freedom movement on the 1950s and 60s, in fact, the, the workers um, who were fighting for rights in the 1950s and 60s called that movement the second reconstruction. And so it might be that we're in a third reconstruction right now. But I really like the notion that this is a continual process. We're on a continuum. The fight for freedom is one that the African-American community saw as existential and fundamental to its being long before the Civil War. And so in some ways, the fight for full freedom that was happening in 1865 and in 1875 as well in 1955, as well as in 2015 and 2022, is one and the same. Reconstruction is one word for it. And so what we're helping people to do is connect the dots, to understand that, you know, when we wrestle with these challenging issues that you raise, from voting rights to birthright citizenship, from racial violence, to questions of memory, to questions of repair and reparations, we need to realize that these things are part of a longer history and we need to help people connect the dots so that they're not unmoored from history, but they begin to understand that these issues today, they're deeply rooted in our past. We hope the exhibition, you know, is going to provide people with productive discussions in their lives. Paul, let me jump in here and just ask you to talk about a couple of the things in this in this exhibition and connect the dots for me, if you will. One of the pairings that I like to talk about a lot is this incredible scroll of names uh, of signatures, rather, that was made in 1865 in Charleston, South Carolina. It was a scroll, it's a scroll of names that's 54 feet long, filled with thousands of signatures of African-American men. This is a scroll that was created in the midst of Black codes being established and in the midst of the fight for what would become the 15th Amendment, the fight to extend the vote to all people. It speaks to the strongest kind of sense of both bravery and advocacy. We show it for the first time. I want to just connect that object to a very contemporary set of materials that we collected that are from Stacey Abrams' campaign for governor in 2018, a campaign that she lost, but a campaign that speaks in some ways to that history and legacy of rights advocacy, of voting, of the need for support of Black candidates. And this Black woman candidate is sort of embodied by a dress that we collected that she wore on election night. The connection between these, the fight in 1865 
to 2018 is one that becomes very palpable. And those kinds of connections are ones that are made across the exhibition to, to bring something very present into the past and to make the, very, the past issues seem much more alive and with us. Really briefly, Paul, let me ask you about the significance of the stained glass windows that were recently removed from the Washington National Cathedral. We have on display and on loan a window from that was that was created, commissioned uh, by the United Daughters of the Confederacy and installed in 1953 in Washington's National Cathedral. And um, those windows were dedicated to traitors to our nation, quite honestly. They were removed following two large, um, horrible, horrific events in our more recent history. The massacre at Mother Emanuel Baptist Church in Charleston in 2015 and the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia later. And the National Cathedral decided that these windows, what they were really valorizing was not heroism or heritage, but a long history of white supremacist violence. And they were determined that that was not going to be uh, a narrative that they wanted to embrace or even accept in any way in the cathedral. And they deinstalled them. And they're going to replace them with new windows in the coming years by an African-American artist, Carrie James Marshall. But for our purposes, we are proud to display that those windows as a fuller truth-telling as a way of understanding that the past is not just past, that these histories um, have an impact on us today and that they were crafted as a way of terrorizing African-Americans or at least second-classing African-Americans in all of our spaces from the public square to our nation's churches. Smithsonian curator Paul Gardulo and the deputy director of the National Museum of African American History and Culture, Kinshasa Holman Conwell, co-edited a companion book to the Make Good the Promises exhibition. She joins me to discuss the legacies of Reconstruction and why the exhibition and the book needed to be done right now. That conversation after one more short break. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. At the end of the day, museums are, among other things, about the documentation of occurrences, of history, of facts, of movements. And it is important that that documentation include not only the ephemeral and exhibition, which can be dynamic and creative and beautiful and engaging, but also books. Books last. And we are in museum work and at this museum, at the end of the day, about what endures and books endure. 
I love the five intertwined legacies of Reconstruction because so many of them seem very current, right? You've got liberation, you've got violence, hello, you've got repair, place, and belief. Can you walk me through those five things and why they needed to be done? They needed to be done, Allison, because that combination, because we wanted to help people understand that not only was Reconstruction a too much understood, too little written about, but very significant part of American history, but that its legacies are long. The shadow of Reconstruction is a long shadow. And if we want to look at the ways in which that shadow is evidenced, liberation, the the Black freedom struggle, which began with the first time an African tried to be free, tried to escape from enslavement. The first time someone defined him or herself by their personhood and not by their status as shadow. And that that reaches all the way across enslavement, the Civil War, emancipation, reconstruction, the civil rights movement, and segregation and the current period that we're in, that 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 desire to be free is is a human desire, is a Black desire. So when Kimberly Crenshaw, the very brilliant writer who, who wrote The Legacies of Liberation, then genders that conversation, that is, looks at it not only through the lens of race, but through the intersectional lens of gender that becomes an even larger story and we begin to see how the legacy of the status of black women is a marker for the greater status of black people and then when we look at violence violence as Kidada Williams teaches us in her essay is not only the fact of violence that is the use of violence as an act to threaten people to make people feel that their rights and their desires cannot and should not be honored because the price that those people will pay, those Black people will pay, will be their further subjugation and cruel and inhuman treatment up to and including death. So when she, and she talks about how Violence is that moment of violence, is that moment when a Black person is attacked, is lynched, is beaten, is raped. But it's also the legacy that comes down through the generations of individual families who have been subjected to that treatment. And so we hear the testimonies, uh, we read the testimonies of Black people who speak of their children who were beaten, who speak of the acts of individual and collective violence meted against black people. Before before, we, before you get yes. to, the, to the other three, Kinshasa, let me ask you, because there is still so much violence right now in 2021, which just blows my mind. I wonder if you think that both of those things, both liberation and violence, have still have a really deep grounding into the bedrock of, of this nation. Yes, because violence 
is one of the ways that the powerful, in this case, white supremacists, exercise and execute their will over other people. And so the Klan and the other racist organizations were able to do what they did, that is terrorize Black communities because they threatened Black communities with death and with all manner of horrors, destruction of whole communities. We see that, for instance, Mother Emanuel, the site of the murder of nine innocent Black people, was a church that had been burned in its history. It became, in the future, a place that was a site of the murder of praying Black people in their church, where they should have been safe, where they should have been able to exercise freedom of religion, a bedrock of the American Constitution. But rather than being safe, as they as they invite in a stranger, that stranger murders them and brutally murders them. Those tropes, those visions of Black people as less than human, that scapegoating of Black people that that murderous person did, blaming Black people for some ridiculous, innocent Black people of some ridiculous crime that they did not commit becomes the justification for murdering them, for shooting them multiple times, for shooting the oldest of those, um, a woman who is, who is, who is, who is uh, Miss Susie Jackson, who's talked about in Kimberly Crenshaw's um, essay, justifies her brutal murder. That comes down through history. That is the way, the blueprint for treating Black people that way was drawn years, years, decades ago. It is not it is not a coincidence, as we hear in the great um, essay, Legacies of Belief, by Hassan Kwame Jeffries. It is not a coincidence that the participants in the so-called Unite the Right demonstration, which led to the death of an innocent woman, that that demonstration in Charlottesville used language The Jews will not replace us. You will not replace us. That notion that white supremacists have held onto for dear life, for decades, that the rights of people of color, in this case, black people, come at the cost of the loss of those rights by white people. We hear that today. There are are, um, political scientists who say that On January 6th, the study of the participants in that attack on the Capitol showed that that one of the through lines of the white men who participated in that was that they believed that they were being replaced in American society by people of color. So the same tropes from Nazi Germany, the Jews will not replace us rang out in the Capitol and in the hearts of those people who stormed the Capitol in the 
false notion that they were protecting their rights. I think it's also important, though, to talk about the other side of this coin of of violence, of repression, of false belief like the lost cause that was perpetrated and is still perpetrated for many years regarding Reconstruction, and to look at where is the where is the fire of, of freedom burning brightly? And, and one of the places in the notion of repair. And one of the reasons we chose repair instead of reparations is because as that conversation, conversation has evolved, not unlike the conversation in South Africa on, on, on the reconciliation commissions. It is not just to say, pay African-Americans certain uh, financial recompense, but it is to build bridges of healing to a community that for generations has not only been subjected to generational poverty, but to generational violence. And it is not just giving people land, not unimportant, giving people recompense, not unimportant, but as with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, standing up and saying, you were wrong. This is a wrong done to you and your community. And we are saying that it needs to be made right. So we find that in municipalities around the country and in national circles, there are discussions of reparations that speak to repair and how important that is. And that is what Catherine Frankie talks about. And then when we unite that with what Mary Elliott talks about in terms of legacies of place, we talk about those communities like the community where the Point of Pines cabin is, a cabin that Fleur and Mary Elliott and others saw in uh, South Carolina, a, a, a cabin that housed generations of Black people, a cabin that is in the, Af- the National Museum of African American History and Culture now. It is a sacred building. It is a building that echoes with the lives of Black people. And it is, it is a site, the site where it, where it stood is a part of this country where mostly black and white family members, descendants are still trying to wrestle with the multiracial legacy of descendants of those who were owned and those who owned other human beings. And those conversations are fraught. They are highly imperfect, but they are part of that desire to look at the arc of the moral universe that is tending toward justice and to look to that justice. We see it here in Washington, D.C., in Georgetown University, looking to not only apologize to descendants of the enslaved, but also to say, what then is the recompense, the assertion that we did it, the admission in public that we did it by one of the most important universities, a major Catholic university in this country, to say we did your ancestors wrong, and this is what we plan to do about it. So that notion that generations later, they will be able to benefit from the riches of a Georgetown University turns on its head that notion. Those you know, as, as, as the Reverend Sharpton preached at George Floyd's funeral, the stone that the, 
builder rejected has become the cornerstone. Let me jump in for a second. And first of all, let me just stop for a breath of awe because I remember standing in that cabin at the museum and everybody was like, you could hear things here. You know, there's a similar place at the, uh, at the national civil rights museum. I think it was, it was, uh, it was a pen where slaves were, were held. Right. And you could Mm -hmm. only think, what am I, what am I hearing? What am I feeling? And oh my Lord, what goes on up in here at night. Right. Mm -hmm. But I digress. I want to ask you, a couple of things, because I know that some of the things this book touches on is questions, and I want to ask them of you. What does it mean now in 2021, freedom? What does equality mean now? And what are you hoping people to get out of that book? We want people to get out of this book, but we want people to get out of all the work of the the National Museum. That is, we want people to be urged on to make good the promises, as Mr. Douglas said to the Republican Convention in 1876, to live up to the promises of the Constitution, a very flawed document, but that promised that there would be equal rights for all. So we want our readers, as we want our audiences to be urged on to, as Lonnie Bunch, our founding director, said when we first started to mu- this museum, to make America better. Because when you're examining a period that by, by any notion of an interpretation of history, as someone like the great Eric Foner, who introduces this volume, says this was the nadir of Black life in the U.S. since they came, when Black people came on these shores. This was a period when freedom was granted and freedom was snatched away, when agency was granted with African-American men um, in, in legislative halls, and when President Andrew Johnson removed Union troops that the late president, Abraham Lincoln, had ordered into the South. When those were removed, that the floodgates of hatred, the floodgates of denial of of the rights and agency of Black people came into play, and the Black codes came into play. And the carceral state, which today makes the U.S. the largest carceral state in the world, that 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 has its beginnings in the convict labor of the period after Reconstruction, when Black existence was criminalized. A touchstone, the patron saint, if you will, of this exhibition is George Floyd. And when you look at the testimony of Philonis Floyd, his brother, you can overlay that with the testimonies that you see in Kadada Williams' essays, the the Say Her Name movement that Kimberly Crenshaw talks about, the testimonies that you see in Hassan Jeffries' essay. Decades and decades and decades when voices 
cry out, how long? How long must Black people be consistently subjected to dehumanizing behavior? And what you see in one of the most important legacies, which is absolutely connected to George Floyd, goes back through history, comes through the murder of innocent Black people from Emmett Till to young Trayvon Martin. You you hear, as you said with the cabin, objects speak. That, that, that cabin speaks. And George Floyd calls out for justice. And the reason that the Black Lives Matter burst into an international movement. And you see that in the book. You see pictures of demonstrations throughout the world. It's because that visceral moment was seen as both the nadir of the treatment of Black people by those who were hired and engaged to protect them. That is the police force of these United States when you see that, it is also, though, the clarion call for action, which is why thousands upon thousands of people took to the streets, which is why you see pictures of people demonstrating for voting rights. It is why you hear the cry of say her name. It is why you go back to that very simple and very elegant and very poignant phrase, Black Lives Matter. That was Kinshasa Holman-Conwell, Deputy Director of the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture. Thanks so much for joining us. Also, thanks to Ashley Armstrong for her production assistance. Like what you hear? Come back for more. There will be new episodes of Kaleidoscope with Allison Keys every Monday. Follow the show wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Allison Keys, CBS News. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.